Good morning, Trinity. I'm excited about this new series that we're starting out of the book of Acts. Uh, we're calling it 44. And here's what's significant about the book of Acts is uh, right after the resurrection of Jesus, which last week we celebrated, and I want you to know I am not suffering from a post-Easter hangover. I'm as excited today about the Lord and uh, being in his house and sharing his word with you as I was last weekend, even though we had record attendance. I'm glad you all came back. Where are your friends? <laughs> uh, it was an exciting weekend. Uh, but, you know, what's significant about the book of Acts is what happened right after the resurrection. That's what we're going to be studying. All right? What happened over the next 40 days after the resurrection? We're going to talk about that. What happened 50 days after the resurrection? We're going to be talking about that. So really the book of Acts is a continuation of the Gospels. All right? And we're going to, look at, we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to go about 9, 10 weeks. And then wherever we end up, we'll stop. And then next year, right after Easter, we'll pick back up where we left off in the book of Acts. And over the next several years, that's how we will uh, complete our study through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, some of you may be wondering, where did you guys get the title 44? Well, there's, 44 is a significant number. Even though, by the way, quite interesting, the number 44 is not in the Bible. But in physics, the number 44 is the atomic number of the element uh, ruthium, which is a hard white metal similar to platinum, and it's used in manufacturing electronic components such as resist, uh, resistors. Uh, 44 is one way to express the number 8, and 8 is a number in the Bible, and 8 is a significant number. Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, which was the eighth day. Eight is a number of new beginnings in the Bible. So if you take four plus four, add them together, you get eight. Okay? Um, it's significant to, uh, in, in relationship to information because when we need some information, we dial 411. And four multiplied by 11 is 44. Are you following me? Doing a little numerology here. Okay? Uh, and then, of course, you know, we can't forget the fictional character, Inspector Harry Callahan, Clint Eastwood, when he said that he carried the most powerful handgun in the world, a 44 Magnum. But here's the real reason why we've named this series 44. Are you ready for it? Are you waiting? Here we go. The book of Acts is the 44th book in the Holy Bible. So out of the 66 books, it's number 44, which makes it significant. And I have the joy and the privilege of teaching this incredible book to this congregation. Let me tell you something. Studying books of the Bible is a joy. Okay, everyone's been quiet uh, all the last couple of services when I said that. Uh, studying books of the Bible is a joy. Okay, there you go. Uh, but not only is it a joy, really it's our duty as Christ's followers. Uh, every book in the Bible is there because it was divinely, supernaturally inspired by God. It's the inherent word of God. It's without error. It's infallible. It's the infallible word of God. And so why don't we study it? You see, some people think, well, you know, studying books of the Bible are for theological seminary students. No, studying books of the Bible is for every Christian. Now, I know there are some that say, well, you know what, we can't really teach books of the Bible in our church because, you know, we live in the 15-second soundbite age. And if you teach books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you know, you're gonna, people are going to be disengaged. They're not going to be entertained. They're not going to enjoy it. You know, uh, they're not going to come back. So, you know, we just kind of do some topical. We skim across the surface, you know, of the Bible. And, and we give just enough of the Bible to say that it was a sermon. 
but not enough of the Bible to really help and challenge people to grow in their faith. And so, you know, we're committed different seasons throughout the year to teach books of the Bible. Last year we taught Nehemiah. Uh, before that we taught the book of Ruth. We taught 1 John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll do some uh, sermon series, you know, for the remaining of this year. But we're committed to teach books of the Bible and go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, and it is our, it's our duty, it's our responsibility. Now, the book of Acts is significant because, as I mentioned before, it's really a continuation of the Gospels. Uh, the book of Acts is a, it's the history of our faith. Right? Uh, it is our spiritual DNA. It tells how this new faith, the Christian faith, started with 120 people in an upper room 2,000 years ago. And it went viral. Right? And it, the message of Jesus and his resurrection spread throughout the known world. And literally, 300 years later, became the predominant faith in the world. Go figure. How powerful uh, is the beginning of our faith, the Christian faith. It's the legacy of our faith. The book of Acts is not necessarily a devotional book like the book of Psalms. Nor is it a teaching book like the epistles. Okay? It's a historical book. Uh, but it's not like dry history. It's our history. It, it, we trace back our spiritual roots uh, to the people here in the book of Acts. They are our spiritual kin. They're our spiritual relatives, our fellow brothers and sisters. This is how it all started. It sets really the course and the pattern for our faith and how we should do church. Uh, in history, what is history but his story? So the book of Acts is an exciting narrative. It's an exciting story of God and the early church. And once again, uh, this is where our, our, our roots are discovered. It's a narrative story written by, and we'll be talking about him here in a moment, written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So it's a narrative story, and it's both descriptive and normative. Descriptive in the, in the, in the sense that everything that Luke records was important, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these are historical events that occurred. So it's descriptive in that sense. In other words, it describes how the early church did certain things. But by no means are some of the descriptions of what happened in the early church a normative or a pattern that we should follow. For example, uh, the book of Acts is descriptive in that it tells us that the apostle Paul, when he spread the gospel to different regions of the world, he went by ship. So people that get stuck, uh, literalists of the Bible, they'll say, unless I can spread the gospel by taking a ship around the world, I will not leave this soil for God. Because if being on a ship was good enough for the Apostle Paul, then being on a ship is good enough for me. Those planes are of the devil. No, really, what, what, what's being talked about in the book of Acts when it de describes how Paul spread the gospel, he used the fastest mode of transportation at that time. Are you following me? But yet, there are things that happen and reoccurred throughout the book of Acts that become normative or become patterns for us to follow in our own life. And we'll be looking at those and uh, describing those so that we can grow and continue to grow in our faith. Another quick example, uh, the Bible here in the first chapter we'll be looking at next week describes how the apostle Judas, who backslid, right, and how he had to be replaced because there should be 12 apostles, and what they did is the early disciples, and it's only recorded once in the, in the book of Acts, so it's, it's a description of what happened, but it's not a norm of what should happen, okay? They cast lots to see who the next apostle should be, and it, the lot fell on Matthias, okay? Now, that doesn't mean in the future, hopefully not anytime soon, when you need to replace 
this senior pastor with a new senior pastor, hopefully you won't simply roll the dice and whoever wins, you know, gets the senior pastor position, right? That's basically what casting lots is. They did it one time. Luke describes how it happened. God happened to bless the way it happened that one time. But it doesn't become a pattern through the book of Acts that we should follow. So you all follow me? We're making some distinctions here. We're laying the groundwork for the book of Acts. By the way, if you want the Bible uh, verses that we'll be going through, if you want some of the extra notes that I've provided, you can go to our Trinity app. That's right. You can download the Trinity app. Go to the App Store, Trinity Lubbock, right? Download the app. Go to, to, to the resource tab, Sermons, and you'll find the sermon notes there. So that way you can, because uh, I want you to take notes, right? I don't put all this time and preparation just for you kind of to listen. Like, oh, that was good. And then you forget about it the next week. I want you to, I want you to go through it. I might, I might even assign some homework, okay? So we're students of the word. Amen. I'll take those few amens. I do appreciate that. Um, here's what's interesting about the book of Acts. You see, the Old Testament highlights the first member of the divine Godhead, the Holy Trinity, God the Father. The Gospels highlight the second member of the divine Godhead, or the Holy Trinity, God the Son. But the book of Acts highlights the third member of the Holy Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. The most misunderstood member of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to discover and learn as we study through the book of Acts, and especially the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, is that the Holy Spirit is the only member of the Godhead that's on the earth with us today. You see, Jesus is in heaven, the Bible tells us, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he told his disciples in advance, it's to your advantage that I go, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, cannot come. So when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came. And now the Holy Spirit is with us and in us and upon us, and he's, he's with the church, and he is the representative of the Godhead in the earth today. Now Jesus is going to come back, and he's with us by the Holy Spirit, all wonderful spiritual mysteries of the New Testament uh, that we will be studying and exploring. It doesn't mean that we will fully be able to grasp and understand it this side of heaven. The Bible says that we look through this glass darkly. All right, So we're all, we're all peering through this glass darkly of spiritual truth as described in the Holy Bible, getting glimpses of heaven and glimpses of glory. And uh, what a joy it's going to be to be able to study this book together. It's interesting that Luke, as I mentioned, is the author of the book of Acts. And uh, to, for you to know a little bit about Luke is important. First of all, Luke was a physician. Colossians chapter 4, he's referred to as Dr. Luke. What's interesting about that is this. Jesus attracts everyone. He attracts the poor, the rich, the less educated, the highly educated. Uh, Jesus uh, has an appeal to everyone. So Luke, as an intellectual... Right? came to faith in Christ, was not one of the apostles, but wrote one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. He became a personal friend of the Apostle Paul, who was another great intellectual. Okay? And they traveled together. And the important thing about that is, uh, I don't care how educated you are or you aren't, but the beautiful thing is whenever we walk into the house of God, we open up the Holy Scriptures together, you don't have to check your intellect at the door. Okay? Uh, because God's word and Jesus appeals to everyone, no matter what your status in life may be. Uh, Luke was more than likely not a Jew, and according to church history, he also died a martyr's death uh, for his faith in Christ. So, what a great guy that Luke was. Uh, here's a key word that we're going to find throughout the book of Acts and in the opening chapter here, in the verses that we're going to be looking at, is the word witness. The word witness, it actually appears 39 times throughout 
the book of Acts. And in a little while, we'll look at what that word witness means and what it means to you and what it means to me. All right, so let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the first five verses of Acts 1, uh, we've entitled this section, uh, Witnesses of Jesus, that we are a witness for Jesus and we're a witness of Jesus. The early church, they were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They were witnesses of the fact that Jesus was alive. So here we go, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? We're about to make history together, okay? Here we go. This is, this is Luke talking as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing it down. Here's what happened. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. Everything that Jesus began to what? Say it with me. To do and teach. So right off the bat, Luke refers to his former book. The prelude to Acts is the Gospel of Luke. And the first guy that's mentioned in the book of Acts is this guy, Theophilus. Now, we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but here's what we can learn about Theophilus from his name alone. The name Theophilus comes from two Greek words, theos and philos, where we get the word phileo or the, the Greek word, one of the Greek words for love. Theos means God, phileo means love, and so what Theophilus means, it means a friend of God. Isn't that cool? The name Theophilus means a friend of God. Now, Gloria and I are not planning to have any children anytime soon. That would have to be a miracle. Uh, but if we had another boy, that would be cool to name him Theophilus. You know, one thing would be assured, if he went to public school, he would have to learn how to fight. Because with a name like that, right, you're going to be teased his entire life. But really, all of us should be a spiritual Theophilus. All of us should be a friend of God. And all of us, hopefully, have a Theophilus in our own life. We have friends or we have a soulmate that God's blessed us with that is like a Theophilus because they are a friend of God. The best friends you could have in your life, the best people you can have in your life are these Theophiluses that happens to be mentioned right off the bat here in the book of, of Acts. His name is recorded in Holy Scripture for eternity. So this guy had to have been an awesome dude. Here's what else we suspect concerning Theophilus is that he's the one that actually uh, was the, finance, the financer of this project. Imagine what it was like to write a particular book in the Bible. The book of Acts is one of the largest books in the New Testament. It has 28 chapters. What's interesting is the book of Acts is the only book in the Bible, the only book in the Bible that does not have a conclusion to it. There's not an ending to the book of Acts. There's not a final word or benediction to the book of Acts. You know why? Because really there's a 29th chapter of the book of Acts. You and I are Acts 29. We're the 29th chapter. The story of all that Jesus began to do and teach, the continuation of everything that Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospels and through his life, there's a continuation of that now through the first century uh, Christians and now, 2,000 years later, there's a continuation of everything that Jesus began to do and teach because we are still his hands, we are still his feet, and we are still the mouthpiece of Jesus, the torch, the legacy of faith that started in that upper room with 120 disciples and then grew to 5,000 and then grew to 8,000 and then like a, it went viral and spread around the known world. That's the torch that we're carrying. Amen? Now it's our turn to represent Jesus in our generation, to be a witness. 
to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Now notice it says here, once again, in, in the first verse, uh, it's a story about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Begin to do and teach. Do and teach. Which means this. The words of Jesus and the works of Jesus are both equally important. And we should praise the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. John Calvin, the great theologian, called this a holy knot. What was a holy knot? Not just the words of Jesus, not just the works of Jesus, but both the words and the works of Jesus. Everything he did and everything he said. You see, there are people in the world that celebrate the works of Jesus, but not the teachings of Jesus because they were controversial. Jesus uh, claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the only way to the Father. So there are some people that like the, the deeds of Jesus, and we're to do the deeds of Jesus, but they don't like the words of Jesus. But we not only celebrate the deeds of Jesus, we also celebrate the words of Jesus. And it's really the words, the works of Jesus that validate the words of Jesus and the words of Jesus that validate the works of Jesus. And if we're to be a continuation of everything Jesus began to do and began to teach, then we need to make sure that our walk matches our talk. We can't just be people with words. We need to be people with action. Amen. Amen. Action behind our words. And Jesus said it this way in John 14, 12. He said, the works that I do, this is Jesus talking, the works that I do, you shall do, and greater works, because I go to my Father. So the book of Acts is a continuation of that. And what's happening now in Christianity in the world today should, should be a continuation of that also. Look at verse 2. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Say that with me, the last part. Through the Holy Spirit. Say it again. Through the Holy Spirit. This is the first time, but it won't be the last time, that the third member of the Holy Trinity, divine Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God manifest in three persons, three distinct persons and personalities. When you get to heaven, you will see the Father. When you get to heaven, you will see the Son. And when you get to heaven, you will see the Holy Spirit. Spirit, okay? One God manifests in three persons. That's what Christians believe. That's what classical Christianity, biblical Christianity, has taught for 2,000 years. There are movements that only, that only preach, uh, they're called Jesus-only movements, where they only preach one member of the Godhead. But please understand, although the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, it's found in the Bible. Let me give you one quick example. Uh, on the day that Jesus was baptized, many of you remember the story when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So, uh, on, that, on that day, which member of the Godhead was actually in the water? This is not a trick question. Which member of the Godhead was actually in the water that day with John the Baptist? Who was it? What was his name? Jesus. There was a voice that spoke from heaven that said, this, and this, what, what is said gives away who said this. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So who was in heaven saying that? The father, speaking about who? Jesus, his son, that was where? In the water, okay? And then the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a dove, okay? A dove might be a symbol of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's not this white bird flying around in heaven, you know, can't find his way. So the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove. So what member of the divine Godhead is referred to there? The Holy Spirit. So you have who's in the water? Who's in heaven? Who's coming upon him like a dove? 
So there you have it. There's an example of how the Holy, how the Holy Trinity works together. And you see that in oh, hundreds of places throughout the Bible. So hopefully you're not confused on that. But there's further learning for all of us related to that wonderful doctrine on the Holy Trinity. So this is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned. It won't be the last time the Holy Spirit is mentioned. But Jesus is talking about, well, Luke is referring to what Jesus talked about just before his crucifixion. Now, the last week of Jesus' life is called Holy Week, right? We celebrated Palm Sunday. We celebrated Good Friday in our Good Friday afternoon service with communion. It was powerful. We celebrated the resurrection on Saturday and Sunday in our services, right? That week, that final week that Jesus was alive physically on the earth, he spent time, intensive time with his disciples. In John 13, we know that he washed the feet of his disciples after they had communion. But in John 14, 15, 16, he, he left them an incredible Bible study, an incredible teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit. You can read about it in John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus had a lot to say, particularly in the Gospel of John, about the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples once in John 7, he said, uh, The Holy Spirit is with you, but soon, 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 soon he will be in you. He hasn't come yet, but when he does, he will be in you. And Jesus said, Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He kept giving them glimpses and he kept giving them hints of the promise, the promise that when he departed, then the Holy Spirit would come. So that's what's being talked about here in verse 2. Look at verse 3. So during the 40 days after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved. Everybody say prove. Jesus proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. That word prove, in the original Greek language, that's Luke used the common language of that day, which was the Greek language. He uh, uses this Greek word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament. And here's what this Greek word means. It means a demonstrable evidence that could be seen, heard, and felt. A demonstrable evidence. There was given a demonstrable evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ was alive to over 500 people who saw, heard, and felt the, the resurrected living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's what's awesome. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead with his glorified body. He'll be the only member in the Godhead that has a glorified body a body, a flesh and bone. See, God the Father has a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about different bodies. There's celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies and spiritual bodies and physical bodies, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15. So God the Father has a spiritual body. The Holy Spirit has a spiritual body. Jesus originally, in eternity past, had a spiritual body, but he humbled himself and became a man and took on human form. And that's the beautiful thing about what Philippians 2 talks about, the, the humanity of Jesus where deity became humanity without ceasing to be deity. That Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He's the most unique person in all of the universe throughout all of eternity because he's both God and human. We're human, not God. God's God, but not human. But in Jesus, <laughs> in Jesus, he's both God and human. And he has this glorified body. And when we, when we, when we experience our resurrection, all right, because when somebody dies, their spirit and soul go to heaven, but their body stays behind. When Jesus died... His spirit and soul went to the, the, to the heart of the earth, as he said in, in Matthew 12, 40, as Jonah was in the, the, bell, the, the, the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so should the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus was down there for three days and three nights. 
at the resurrection, his spirit and soul came back into his body, physical body, and it was glorified. And with that body, he could walk through walls. But it was a real body. It wasn't some like spiritual phantom body, okay? And he proved it because he sat down with his disciples and he ate food. You know that you're going to be able to eat food in your glorified body? You know, I'm really looking forward to heaven for many, many reasons, one of which there's going to be food in heaven. And I'm saying it's going to be the best food you've ever, you've ever tasted. You won't have to eat it uh, to live, okay, but, but, but you'll eat it to fellowship. I mean, God's an eating God. I mean, one of the first things we do when we get to heaven is going to have a big banquet. And, 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 the, and Isaiah tells us what's going to be served at that banquet. There'll be meat and wine. That's what Isaiah said. I don't drink wine this side of heaven, but I'm going to drink plenty on that side of heaven. So, because uh, <laughs> it, it won't get you drunk, you know. Won't make you do goofy things. Um, and when you get to heaven, listen, there's going to be food and there won't be any gyms because nobody's going to have to work out when they get to heaven. Isn't that cool? Your body's going to look good and stay good throughout all eternity. Amen. Are you serious? Are you make, I'm not making any of that up. I'm telling you, it's all in the Bible. Find it for yourself. Okay. So he proved, I'm real, guys, to over 500 people. Now listen, listen, listen. I'm going to say something that's going to offend some people. So in advance... Please accept my humble apology for offending me, even though I intend to offend you, okay? Um, people that discount the resurrection of Jesus, which aren't, aren't that many, about 60, I think 68% of Americans believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all right? But for those that don't, there's one or two reasons why somebody denies the resurrection of Jesus. Because we have infallible proof, historical infallible proof. There's a mountain of evidence. There's only one of two reasons why somebody today would deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, they're intellectually lazy. Number two, they're dishonest. It's, only, it's one of, of two reasons. Either you are intellectually lazy and you are unwilling to weigh the mountain of evidence which is infallible proof that he is alive, or you're dishonest, you don't want to believe in the resurrection because you know what would happen if you believed in the resurrection, if you believed that Jesus was no longer dead, he was no longer hanging on a cross somewhere, his body was no longer in a tomb somewhere, if you actually believed that Jesus was alive and he's the ruling, reigning king and he's going to come back a second time without sin and salvation, it would have to change the way you live and the way you think and the way you act and the way you plan. It would rearrange your entire life. It would be such a huge game changer in somebody's life. It is more convenient to believe he's still dead. But see, you're smarter than that. Look at your neighbor and say, he's not talking about you. You're smarter than that. I can just, I look at you and you have smart written all over your face. <laughs> okay. And he goes on to say in that same verse, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. How cool, for the next 40 days, after the resurrection, I mean, once the early disciples got over the initial shock, <laughs> he's alive and he looks human. You know, I've seen The Walking Dead. When people come back, you know, as, as zombies, they don't look human. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus was not reanimated. He was alive, resurrected, okay? Not reincarnated. Didn't come back in some spirit form, in some other form, whatever. The Bible doesn't talk about reincarnation. There is no such thing as reincarnation. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So no matter how hard you try, you can only die once. And then you better be ready to meet your maker, buddy. You better be ready, okay? Because it's coming. So when Jesus uh, came back to life, he was fully alive. And for the next 40 days, he met at different times with over 500 of his followers who became eyewitnesses. And listen, if Jesus wasn't alive, why were they willing to all die a martyr's death? A torturous, painful, why were they willing to give up everything? How many know if, if Jesus remained dead, 
Those people would have, they would have played the part until it got to the point of them having to give their life. And like, hey, I'm just kidding, man. You know, I, I don't believe this stuff, really. But they were willing to go all the way and die. Why? For a, for a myth? For some fictional story? Oh, no, 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 my friend. They sat with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They touched Jesus. They knew he was alive. And uh, after he ascended to the Father, see, they, 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 it, it was a game changer for them. And during that time, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Anytime you come across this term in the Bible, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, K-O-G for short. K-O-G is millennial talk. K-O-G is the talk of when Jesus will come back to this world, establish his kingdom, and will rule and reign from the throne of his kingdom, which will be in Jerusalem. Okay? So he talked to them about the coming kingdom of God. Imagine the things they heard, uh, the things that they learned during that period of time. It hasn't happened yet, but it will one day happen. All right, we're going to continue. Verse 4. Before we get to verse 4, though, let me, let me challenge all of us on something. As we study the book of Acts together, we're going to learn a lot about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking all of us to approach our study of the book of Acts, not as Charismatics, not as Baptists, not as Pentecostals, not as Methodists, not as, uh, did I say Baptists? I'll say it again. Not as Baptists, not as Catholics, not as Presbyterians or Episcopalians or non-denominationalists or interdenominationalists, not by any denominational perspective or point of view, but that we would come as sincere, devoted followers of Jesus Christ with humble hearts, allowing God's word to interpret itself and receiving with humility the revealed truth of God's word that we might apply it in our lives so that we could live it and obey it and put it into practice. Would you all agree to that? Raise your hand. Okay, now clap your hands. Raise your hand again. Clap your hand. Okay. Uh, so, having said that, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood member of the divine Godhead. There is more controversy around the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than anything else. It's the one member of the Godhead that Satan fears. The power of the Holy Spirit. You can speak against the Father and be forgiven. You can speak against the Son and be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. This is holy, holy ground when it comes to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Whole denominations have been erected around the doctrine uh, and or the misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit denominational theological lines have been drawn in the sand. Barriers have been erected around this one subject of the Holy Spirit. More misunderstanding related to the Holy Spirit than any other topic in all of Scripture. And yet, the Bible, the Bible has more to say about the Holy Spirit, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, than almost any other subject in Scripture. The Bible has more to say about the baptism in the Holy Spirit than it has to say about the born-again, new birth experience. We're going to be getting into that in the weeks to come. So look at verses 4 and 5 now. Once, when he was eating with them, this is Jesus, once again, he, he proved that he was real, he, he ate with them. He commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. Read verse 5 out loud with me. 
John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will what? Say it with me. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Luke is referring to what Jesus said right after the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. So let's go back to that moment. Luke 24, 49, this is what Luke in the book of Acts was referring to. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That word power is the Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. He's telling his disciples, listen, before you preach one sermon, before you witness to anybody, before you go anywhere, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes, which was the day of Pentecost. You see, for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared many places at many times and taught his disciples, proved he was real. On day 40, Jesus was ascended into heaven. Okay, we'll be looking at that next week. Ten days later, ten days later was the 50th day after the resurrection, which happened to be the Feast of Pentecost. At the Feast of Pentecost, there are seven key feasts that the Jewish people would, would, would practice in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which means 50th, it was 50 days after Passover, okay, which was the crucifixion of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came as promised on the day of Pentecost. And the 120 people that were in that upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in a heavenly language as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. That was the conception of the church. Now listen. Certain things, there are certain things that God continues to do, but not the same way he did them originally. You see, Jesus died on the cross originally. And whenever somebody, whenever somebody gets saved today, Jesus doesn't have to keep coming back and dying on the cross, keep coming back and dying on the cross. <laughs> no, he did it once. And when we put our faith in the atoning work of what Christ did 2,000 years ago, we receive the same benefit and blessing of, of those that were there in the first century because the promises to you and to your children's children to many generations, all right? When it comes to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit came once in fire and wind on the day of Pentecost. He doesn't have to keep coming in wind and fire every time somebody receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happened once, but what can still happen is the same infilling of the Holy Spirit that the early disciples experienced, Christians today can experience because we look back to that one event that occurred and we put faith in that one event the same way Christ people can put faith in what happened 2,000 years ago at the cross and still receive the benefit and the blessing from it. So now we're to be a witness to the truth, verses 6 through 8, and look at what it says. So, when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, this is the question that they kept asking Jesus during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And you, could you can tell in the gospel there were times that Jesus got a little impatient with his disciples. He would say things like, oh, ye of little faith, how much longer must I be with you? And then he'd look at his watch and he'd say, about eight more months and then I'm out of here. Okay, uh, I made that last part up. But here's one of those moments. This is post-resurrection. The ascension is about to happen. And once again, like, are you going to kick the behind of the Romans? And are you going to establish the Davidic uh, dynasty and kingdom once again where we could be put in charge? We are waiting for your millennial reign. And so Jesus responds, verse 7. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates, Greek word chronos, where we get our word chronology, or the passing of time the father alone has the authority to set those dates chronos and times kairos 
which is a season of time. God only knows the specific season and the specific time when Jesus will return. And they are not for you to know. In other words, he's saying, it's none of your business. You know, sometimes we might ask the Lord questions. And basically he's saying, it's none of your business. I expect you to trust me anyway. Okay? All right. But here is, what, here is your business. Look at verse 8. Let's read this out loud together. This is Jesus continuing to talk. They just said, are you going to establish your kingdom? You know, is it going to happen now? He's like, it's not for you to know or even the Son of Man to know. That's in the Father's hands. It's his business. You know, uh, you're, you're not on the planning committee. You're on the welcoming committee. Just need to be ready when it does happen, okay? He says, but here is your assignment. Look at verse 8. Read it out loud with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, in Lubbock, Texas, and to the, that's what the ends of the earth mean, and to the ends of the earth, okay? He had you and me in mind. Now it says this. We got to close. It says this. You will be what? Witnesses. You know what that word witness means in the Greek? Look it up in the Strong's Concordance. It's real simple. It's where we get our word martyr. He's saying, you all are going to be martyrs for me. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be clothed. You need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need to be clothed with power from on high so that you could be a witness. You see, every one of these disciples that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, all of them were all Christians. They all got saved right after the resurrection. They saw Jesus. Like Thomas, they said, my Lord, my God. They confessed him as Lord and Savior. In John, the end of John's gospel, Jesus breathed on his disciples. He went and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit in them. They were born again. But there was a, a second blessing that God had for them. We're going to be talking about this, called the baptism in or with or of the Holy Spirit. It's also referred to throughout the book of Acts as the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Both terms, basically, we'll be looking at this, mean the same thing. This glorious experience that God has for believers where we receive power from on high. For what purpose? So when we come to church, we can feel, have goosebumps? Goosebumps are fine, but they're not biblical, but they are fine. No. We have the power of the Holy Spirit so that when we come to church, we can raise our hands during worship and sing with enthusiasm. No, but that's good also because that is in the Bible. The Bible says, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. God wants to give you the power of the Holy Spirit in me, the power of the Holy Spirit, so we could be witnesses. Now listen, not all witnesses for Jesus were martyrs, but all martyrs were witnesses for Jesus. You know, around the world today, right now, there are Christians and they are being persecuted severely because they believe like you and I believe and they love Jesus and they, have to, and they verbalize it. In Muslim countries right now in the Middle East, they're being killed. In Syria right now, they're being killed. Whether they're called Catholic Christians or Protestant Christians, if they believe in Jesus, they're a part of our family. They're our brothers and they're our sisters. They have faith in Christ. They've been gloriously saved and they are dying for their faith right now. In China, Christians are being imprisoned and persecuted, and some are being executed. They're being martyrs for their faith. Now listen, it hasn't come our way yet. Hopefully it doesn't. But you experience persecution 
When you begin to take a stand for Jesus, you begin to proclaim the good news that he's not dead and he's alive, and that changes everything. That should change the way you think. That should change the way you live. When you begin to say, I am a Jesus-following, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, Bible-reading, Bible-toting, Bible-believing, on-fire disciple of Jesus Christ, the world will take a step back and look at you and say, there is something wrong with you. You, my friend, are out of the mainstream. When you take a stand for God's definition of marriage between one man and one woman, all hell literally will break out against you. You will feel the wrath of this world of ours that preaches tolerance related to everything else except when it comes to a Christian taking a stand on what the Bible teaches about these moral and social issues. You will feel the wrath of man. There are those who have a calling and they venture into the Hollywood scene and they want to be an actor or they want to be an actress and if you let it be known that you are a Jesus follower you will be marked with a black mark and it will hinder your ability to be the person that God's called you to be because there is such low tolerance, zero tolerance for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ in the entertainment industry unfortunately. But thank God there are some other producers, there are some other ministries and businesses that are being raised up that are producing some really good God-centered Christian films and I'm saying more power to them. Listen, if you are a businessman or a businesswoman and you run a company and you happen to be asked a very controversial question, what do you believe concerning marriage? And you happen to say, you know, I, I believe what the Bible, I don't judge anybody, but I believe what the Bible says between one man and one woman. Kathy Truett tried that with Chick-fil-A. Look what happened. A guy just, what, a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of, uh, what's that company? Modzilla, Godzilla, Monsterzilla, somethingzilla, whatever. They found out that he actually gave money to Proposition 8 in California, which was a bill to define marriage between one man and one woman. And this was like four years ago. And he happened to give like $1,000 to it when they discovered, the board discovered that he was for the biblical definition of marriage. They fired him on the spot. That's why, my friend, when you determine that you're going to choose sides, you're not going to stand in the middle of the road. You need to get on one side of the road or the other because those that are in the middle of the road are going to be run over, my friend, in these last days. And hopefully you choose to stand on the right side of the road. And it's not a matter of us saying, is, is God on our side as Americans? The question is, are we as Americans on God's side? You need to make sure you're on the right side. And when you're on the right side, you better have the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness for Jesus Christ. When you stand up against all of culture and you say, Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. Here I stand, here I shall die. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit, like Stephen had. In Acts chapter 7, he was the first martyr of the New Testament church. And as they were stoning Stephen because he wouldn't back down, he wouldn't alter the message, he wouldn't water it down. As they were stoning him, he didn't condemn them. He prayed the prayer that Jesus prays it, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they didn't have the pleasure of killing Stephen, for the Lord took his spirit and soul out of his body before he died. And as far as we know, Stephen is the only guy that received a standing ovation 
mansion in heaven because the Bible says Jesus stood to his feet as Stephen was welcomed into glory. Now let's all stand to our feet. Come on, church. Come on, let's take a stand for Jesus. Amen. I went over in time. Let's pray, God. Thank you for the work of Jesus, what he began to do and teach. May it be real in our hearts. Thank you for the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit that when we're saved, we have him in us. But when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, he comes upon us. May we experience the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, that we might have that power to be a witness for Jesus. I pray your grace and blessing upon your people today, Lord. With heads bowed, eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then say this prayer out loud. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life, be my Lord, and be my Savior. Amen and amen. We love you, church. Have an awesome day.